Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. My guest today is an individual who represents overcoming adversity and has dedicated his life to helping others, to helping others to help themselves. As a former Air Force combat crew member, his job entailed mid-air refueling of the once highly secretive SR-71 Blackbird and the F-117 Stealth Fighter. While on active duty, he was selected as California Volunteer of the Year. He's received personal, personal accommodations from four U.S. presidents, was honored as one of the 10 outstanding young Americans, and later was the only American to be honored as the outstanding young person of the world. He's a recipient of the National Jefferson Award, which is considered the Pulitzer Prize of Public Service, joining other recipients such as Sandra Day O'Connor and Colin Powell. He's the author of nine inspirational books that have been on the bestsellers list for well over 13 years combined. He's the first author to have four number one international bestsellers and to have four books simultaneously on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly 10 years. He has served as a California fire captain in two separate districts. During that time, he's been deployed to the state's most horrendous fires. He's here today to talk about his new book, Return to the River, and his belief that our only limitation is ourselves. Dave Pelzer, thank you so much for joining me here today on Free Thinking, sir. Thank you, Montel. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you again, and you look terrific, sir. Oh, so do you, sir. It's been quite a long time, but I'm glad it's, that we've been It's been a journey. Yeah. It's been a journey. And I, I want to, if I may, with respect, jump in and, and say something for, to you sure. and to your audience. And I've really thought and prayed about this. But uh, many years ago, before a child called it, made the list you know it, it it just struggled and struggled and struggled and uh some people even within the publishing uh homes said that this book might be too graphic or they weren't sure about the subject matter and to me it was always about resilience and it was your show that got the book on the list and and then we you and i did uh, i think four more other shows and I, i've never forgotten that your kindness of your staff and yourself and I'm just grateful to, to, to see see you again and see you in good spirits. Well, thank you, sir. And, um, you know, it was uh, your book was extremely impactful, I think, for the world. It was a story that needed to be heard. You know, um, it's been such a long time since we have spoken. But, you know, I from time to time do think back on several of the shows that we did and, you know, think back on them but, uh, and, and being proud of the fact that I was able to share that story with so many people. And I'm so glad that you shared it with the world the way you did. Well, as you know, in, in, in life, particularly at our age, there's so much luck and you got to count your blessings. And the same thing, you just keep moving forward. Absolutely. You just keep moving forward. That's really, you know, the spirit of true resilience, I believe. And that's something that you could share with so many. And for so many people who don't know your story, let's go back for a second. And can you share some of what you went through in your childhood? And then maybe it talk was, about how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, I think that the answer to that question, again, luck and what I call tumblers, when things just come together at the right time, the right place. And to even answer that further, uh, I'm happy to say that I just celebrated my 50th anniversary of my rescue. And I was able to do it with my son and his son by taking him to, you know, the San Francisco Golden Gate Park, because I really... 
looking at life now, being a former fire captain or serving in Katrina or flying for the Air Force, I should have died a long time ago. It was a situation which my mother, who was bullied and abused, uh, abused me, and it became one of the worst cases of child abuse in then California's history. And to the point that I was invisible, I was not a member of the family. I was stabbed and not allowed to go to the hospital for medical treatment or starve for 10 to 14 days. And I would try to eat out of garbage cans or just being assaulted in, in so many ways. And it basically started from age four until I was finally rescued by my teachers at age 12. And then let's slow down for a second. Because some of that entailed, I'll never forget graphically how you were chained to the toilet, right? Chained in the bathroom. Well, uh, I wasn't chained. I was just restrained is what restrained. my mother called it. And uh, the worst part for me was she had this dot. She would always study things and try new things out. And the most deadly thing was the uh, a mixture of ammonia and Clorox that she had me in the bathroom or uh, twice in 24 hours. She had me swallow ammonia, which, you know, again, it burns your trachea and esophagus and it affects my speech or even at my age, how I can breathe when I try to sleep, for goodness sakes. But to me, it was always a counter act. Uh, when she burned my arm on a gas stove at age eight, I had to learn that I'm not going to change the situation unless I do it internally. So that's when I developed plans to feed myself by stealing food or uh, learning uh, how to tighten up muscles in my body. So I had to learn kinesiology, but it was always, you know, that beautiful mind thought process that you just have to outthink your way through things. Because I'm kind of surprised that some people are surprised because when they say, how did you do it? I'm thinking, well, Montel will give the same answer. You just do what you have to do for the now, whether it's COVID or fighting cancer or going through a divorce or some unexpected situation. And that's why I think that resilience that I developed as a child has been with me for the rest of my life. As you, as you look back, though, that some of those times now in your adult self, you can look back at your childhood self. You have to think to yourself, I do not understand how I got through that. I mean, let's yeah. back up for a second. You were a ch one child of how many children in your family? Uh, eventually, uh, one out of five. And I was number two. I was and you were the only one that was selected to be targeted by your mother, right? Yeah, and, and that's kind of normal with perpetrators or pedophiles. They call it targeting, target child selection, or what they call feeding. Once you're like a T-Rex, once you're done with that, you feed off someone else. And it's it's a very long process because it takes so much time to make sure that the secret's not being exposed, controlling the lies, and controlling others around you, like my father, who was just blindsided by this, or my siblings thought, well, David must be so bad, we don't want to end up like him, so we're going to stay out of the way. And, you know, when, when, when you, I know your story didn't shock your siblings, but there was so much of your story that they didn't know themselves, even though they knew the door was closed, and but they didn't know what was going on inside of that closed door, did they? No, because for the most part, when mother would concoct all these deviant uh, uh, tortures, the, the kids were gone. My father was always at work and there was always some excuse like I ran into the doorknob or I burnt myself with a match, even though I have blisters from the palm of the hand all the way to my biceps. There was always some type of excuse and it, it some of it seemed unbelievable. But I, one of my teachers, you had her on your show, Miss Woodworth, my English teacher, just passed away. And I got to meet some of the families that I went to school with and it was just they tell me things that I have completely forgotten. But the bottom line for me is 
you know, I was obviously rescued. I was placed in the services of foster care and social services. And they obviously did a very, very good job with me. And I was able to, you know, move on. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I would guess that when you were finally rescued, and I'm going to use the term rescued, and placed in foster care, even those first couple of weeks in foster care, how were you able to communicate with people and let them know what you had been through? And how old were you when you finally got into foster care? I, I was 12, and I think I weighed like 64, 62 pounds. My mother uh, did not allow me to speak. And, and to the point that they tried to have me go to speech therapy in school, I had no, I, I was, I was a, an animal from another planet. Basically, I had no hygiene. I would try to talk with my hands. I would point at things. And it was, a, it's like raising a child that just got beamed to planet Earth in a sense. And the only person I really opened up to was this beautiful, angelic uh, social worker. And it took a lot of time because I was trained. Parents are perfect. You must be so bad. You deserve to be treated like this. So they had to debrief me because I was horribly brainwashed. And then, so how, what was schooling like for you? Your, your last, uh, you know, after 12, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, you were in junior high and high school. And did, did it take you a while to transition into school? I know your mother didn't have you in school. So you had to catch up quite a bit, did you not? Well, it, it was weird because I was allowed to go to school because she was like the director of the PTA. So she had to make appearances for on her behalf and some with me. Uh, when I was at school before I was rescued, it was like paradise. I got to eat food from the garbage cans. I wasn't in the hell home and so forth. And when I was in foster care, everything changed. Uh, I wanted to play outside. I didn't want to do any homework. But then in, I learned very quickly in foster care, I was working about 40 hours a week while in junior high and then 60 to 90 hours a week while in high school because my biggest fear was I didn't want to be homeless like my father was. I just wanted to have a stake so I can, you know, live as best as I could. And I was very afraid of aging out back then. They didn't have the ILP, independent living school programs that they have now. And, you know, now what did happen to your family, your parents after your mother and your father, after you were taken out of the home? Did they, was there any retribution against them or you were just taken from the home? Uh, my parents had separated in January uh, and I was rescued that March. Uh, my, and I got a lot of stories from the siblings as I bumped into them, as I, you know, matured. The, the cover story was, uh, where is David? Oh, he, he's arrested. He shot somebody and he burned the school down, the oh. entire school. And, and my brother who told me this is uh, he suffers from uh, multiple sclerosis as well. And, and he has some some. Uh, mental issues. He really believed that I somehow burnt down the school, even though he was at the school, I supposedly burnt down. And it was so weird and over the top. They're like, we can't believe this. This is not true. But they always talking to them as adults. They, they always knew something was bad, very bad. They just thought it was normal in this family dynamic. And my father and was happy that I was that I escaped. But there were no legal repercussions against your parents? No, not one was filed. And the, back then, and it sounds so bizarre because we would call it attempted murder, for goodness sakes. Uh, they didn't have penal codes to protect children or those trying to protect children. That's why my teachers, the nurse and the principal, even the police officer were putting their careers on the line for me. 
I mean, it sounds very dramatic, but it's the absolute truth. And then you have gone on to have such a heroic and and fulfilling life, my friend. I, I, I you know, um, did you let's let's talk a little bit about your training. When you graduated from high school, did you immediately go into the military? Did you go to college first? Talk about you know, how you transitioned as, to adulthood. Well, I was terrified <laughs> as a high school student. Uh, I didn't socialize, didn't drink. I, I was, you know, kind of like the monk of the month for like 30, 40 years. But bottom line, I was scared of aging out and being homeless. So I desperately wanted to join the armed forces. Uh, I had a passion for aircraft. I thought Air Force. And I wanted to be a firefighter like my father was in San Francisco in California. And I went down to the recruiter's office six, seven times a week. And the last thing they wanted, Montel, and you know this being a naval officer, for goodness sakes, they didn't want a high school dropout in foster care who's hunched over and stutters constantly. Even the Army said, no, no. So what I had to do, like you, you've done in your life, you got to prove yourself. you got to crawl on glass a little bit. Uh, I showed up every day and I shined their shoes. I read every brochure. I just did anything I could and I caught a lucky break. And the recruiter said, we're going to get your foot in the door, but you're either going to drive a bus or be a swamp cook. And the swamp cook is like before you get discharged, uh, a dishonorable discharge, they throw you in a swamp for a few weeks, like in the movie Papillon. I joined. I got lucky. I just sucked it up as best I could and then went to, you know, airborne training and so forth. And eventually I got that slot to fly. And, and for me, the SR-71 back in the day was the most, you know, unique weapon air aircraft that we had. And, and I've always had that luck of falling in the right place at right time. And that's when I kind of got involved. After I had my son, you know, back in child abuse by being a counselor in the local juvenile hall or doing in-service training and so forth. And one thing led to the other. And that's where the child called it came to play, because I gave the printed version of that book to my teachers on the exact day of my 20th anniversary of my rescue. And I know I keep saying rescue, but it's it, I have a birthday and I have a rescue day and I pray and celebrate and I usually work. But there was a lot of luck because I did interview my mother before she passed away. And I uh, I know how to interview people that don't want to be interviewed in a sense, uh, mm -hmm. people that are very bad. And I acted like I dropped my keys on the floor. So I'm down on my hands and knees. My mother is sitting above me. And I kind of asked her with body language, you know, was there ever a chance that we, you, could have gone too far? And Montel, I have to tell you, it's chilling for me. Without thinking, she states, David, you have to understand, I was planning on killing it the summer of 73. They took you away in March of 73. The only problem I had, David, was where to hide its body, David. And that's what we call a double negative because perpetrators and pedophiles try to make you unhuman so they don't, don't get the effect that they're harming, it's particularly a child of their own. And we were so close so many times of, of her just going too far. So I was just very, very lucky. And I, I just to make sure while people are, are listening in, your first book, again, was called A Child Called It. And it was it chronicled everything that took place while your mother basically isolated you and, you know, singled you out for abuse in your family. Um you you went on to graduate from school, high school, went on into the military, and it was after that that you wrote your book. 
Yes, uh, I, I was. I wrote the book when my son was probably about two. I started writing it, and then the book was printed and came out in 1993. And uh, the book was, of course, dedicated to the teachers, and the second book I dedicated to them as well. And as you know, being a published author yourself, it's it's a totally it's a very cutthroat business. So a lot of luck involved. The timing was was perfect. Right. No, it's very perfect. So then the first book hit. And what was that like for you when, you know, you, you had probably told your story a little bit, but now the world knows about your story. It, it, when I was a child, I used to read books in the basement. My mother would actually time our attention time, how much she can abuse me with how much homework I brought home. So I figured, well, I guess I'm stupid. So I got a lot of homework. And Kids in my day, they wanted to be an astronaut or a baseball player or a ballerina. I wanted to be a writer like Steinbeck or, or Stevenson, these adventure stories. And I never believed that, you know, I would have writing a book and getting it published as something else. But to make the list, it's just you're playing for the San Francisco Giants. That's the A team of, you know, of, of, of teams, for goodness sakes. And it was kind of different for me because I'm, I was so focused on, you know, do a good job today, do a good job tomorrow. When it made the list, I was surprised, but I was on to the next thing, you know, just keep on. I was doing a lot of in-service trainings at the time and so forth, or visiting military bases or doing comedy and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so you, you went ahead and I mean, you, when you look back at your life, my friend, you've accomplished so, so much. And there are so many other, well, I don't believe there's another story like yours that I've ever read before, but there are so many children who grow up in abusive households that can't succeed, that won't succeed. They can't let it go. Yet yeah. you did succeed and prosper. I, I just, let's go back in that time and say, what was it in you then that made you understand you had to persevere? I, I think for me, and, and there was, uh, I, I've had moments like at age eight, uh, that's 90% of our psychological makeup, like how we see ourselves in the world or how we think the world sees us, our place. And at age eight, my mother had burned my arm on a gas stove. And it was the first time I psychologically vomited. I realized she's sick. I'm not the bad child. No one's going to do anything for myself but myself. I've got to change this equation. And with blisters on my palm or my hand and my arm, I basically did the Boy Scout salute. I raised my arm. I made that promise. And it sounds kind of maybe dramatic, but I basically said, from this moment on, I am never going to quit. And from this moment on, I'm going to give it my best shot. So that changed, you know, how I did things. And I remember being 14 in foster care for about a year and a half. And they had this child psychiatrist. And I swear to God, Montel, he looked just like Doc Brown from Back to the future, the hair and everything. Uh -huh. And he's telling my foster mother, myself, and my beautiful social worker, there's no chance Dave's ever going to make it. And they're like, what? You know, he said the abuse was too long. I was isolated for so many years. I would never adjust to a normal society. And he was adamant. And he's the, you know, the doc of docs. And my social worker and my foster mother basically nudged me because I'm in the middle. And I never heard a social worker swear before because angels don't swear. And she said, basically, as God is my witness, don't you listen to this ass. If you can survive all that you did, Mr. Pelzer, without any help or any training, I expect greatness from you. 
And it was one of those moments. Because I tell people when I try to do, you know, help, uh, if you can survive cancer, you can survive the flu. If you can survive a bad divorce, you can survive uh, an argument. If we can survive the war of the world's COVID, guess what? We can survive anything else coming our way. You just have to break it down one day at a time, one hour at a time, one moment at a time. And I tell people, if you're having a bad day, it's only for the now. Just do what you can for now and move forward. And I'll say this to your audience, Mr. Williams, you're the pinnacle of that. You're the pinnacle of that. Every day is not easy. And sometimes you just do what you have to do to keep it going. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think in, in some ways our stories are similar because though mine was not a story of that kind of abuse, you know, I ran into a situation at a very early age where I had someone basically tell me that because of the color of my skin, I could be nothing in life. And, you know, I remember that was my aha moment when I realized years later after they said that to me, what they meant. Because, you know, I was too young to even understand what this person meant by, you know, the, the statement that they had made to me. And then when I was old enough to realize that, I was kind of almost not trying to be defiant, but I literally, and I've said this over and over and over again in my life, you don't know me. You know, you think you know me, but how dare you think you have a crystal ball that can determine what my life is going to be like? How dare you think you know what I am made of? And I consistently and constantly remind myself that I alone own the definition of who I am. I'm not going to let anybody else define me. You can't define me by my past. You can't define me by my race. You can't define me by accomplishments that I've made. But yeah, like I was saying, I mean, for me, it was it was that aha moment, like you had the aha moment. Yeah. And then, you know, I also am a very firm believer on getting busy living. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. There are so many ways that we can try to keep preparing ourselves to die or, you know, we can wallow in our muck or we can get busy living, understand that our muck is nothing more than just another step up the ladder, another wrong way right. right. step on right. step over it, keep going, right? I, I got a golf lesson one time from Mr. Eastwood, my first golf lesson from Mr. Eastwood. And I use some of his lines, get busy living or get busy dying, boy. Mm -hmm. And another thing I, I want to express to your audience, because I want your audience to go away with thinking, okay, I'm going to have to break this down. I'm going to have to face it. I'm going to have to accept it and move forward. And you and I have a hero that we've never talked about, but I know you like this hero. And... They teach this in psychology classes called the Clark Kent effect. Yeah. Clark Kent is a metropolis. He's out of his league. He comes from small town, USA, Smallville, if I'm correct. He's yeah. kind of geeky. He's kind of slow. He just doesn't fit in. Everything he does seems to, he fails. He stumbles. He falls. But inside where no one can see, he can open up his shirt and he's faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah. He's more powerful than a locomotive. And that's our Superman. And that's why I think particularly the kids, the young kids, the, you know, folks under 25, they love the Iron Man, Superman, Batman, the Marvel comics, Black Panther and so forth, because what you see is not what's really me. And that's the one thing I've always been persistent. Even I became a volunteer fire captain at age 52. I don't know if that was arrogant or ignorance. And it took me a long time to understand that dynamic. And I eventually 
Uh, and I'll, I'll t another quick story is I carried my father's badge with me on every call when I went on your show, when my son was born and I used my father's badge for my helmet. But my point being in life, sometimes you just got to scrape it through. You crawl on glass, you keep on digging. They said uh, that movie with Brad Pitt, World War Z, life is movement. Uh, Winston Churchill, when you're going through hell, you just keep going. And that's what you have to do. It makes me upset is when I see uh, 40, 50 year old victims of child abuse that are never happy. And I try to tell them you survive for a reason. I've never seen anybody, Mr. Williams, who says uh, I'm a victim of cancer. They say, no, I fight the cancer. And today's a blessed day because I wasn't expected to live. Every day is that blessing and you make the most of it, for goodness sakes. Absolutely. And, and childhood abuse is really, in a sense, no different, though. It is different in the fact of what you go through and the scars that it leaves, the invisible scars that it leaves um, and the visible scars that it leaves. But at the same time, you know, I believe very strongly that that one portion of your life is not what defines the rest of your life. I mean, I, no. I look back at mine, you know, I've had three 17 year careers in a sense. I mean, I, I was in the military for almost 18 and a half years active duty, uh, 22 years over time is what I spent there. 17 years doing a talk show. Now I'm 17 years doing what I'm doing right now, which has been working on ways to give back and working on ways to continue to be relevant in our society. So, yeah. Um, I mean, when we when we look at life and we we try to think about those areas of life in our past, though they are stepping stones and ways for us to actually work out how we're going to look at our future, but they don't define us completely. I mean, yes, I was in the military like yourself. You were in the military, did some really unbelievable top secret things. But how much of the top secret work really affected your work as a firefighter? Well, it gave you the internal yeah. wisdom and, and strength to make sure that you kept yourself safe on the battlefield of the fire. But that battlefield of fire was entirely different than that battlefield up in the sky when you're trying to, you know, refuel a supersonic aircraft that's probably one of the, the is still one of the most advanced aircrafts ever made by man. Um, the two aren't the same. However, the tools you use to cope with them were what actually were etched in your heart and your soul and your mind. And that's why you can continue to become as successful as you are. Yeah, Tell me you know, it's, it's, that, it's that internal persistence. Again, we're, I remember when I was in jump school, the Army jump school, I think we started out with 700 people. And the first day, D-O-R, 500 people dropped on request because they weren't used to being yelled at or this is going to be an 18 hour day. They weren't used to anything. And that's why I think with the younger folks that we see today, when COVID hit, they thought, okay, flip the switch. Let's get a new router. This thing's going to be done in a week or so. And I've always had that persistence every day to do something forward. And whether it's making people laugh or paying it forward three times a day or doing something for folks that aren't, aren't you know, doing too well, it's that internal flame that for me that never never goes out because sometimes montel the truth is i'm only human i make stupid mistakes i'm not on my best behaviors i always should be and i always go back to that core if i can survive this i can survive that this thing i'm working at right now ain't as bad as it was when i was a kid and that just kind of gives me that springboard effect 
And I think a lot of people, one, they haven't been challenged. So they don't have that base to draw from, that well to draw from. Or two, they're so overwhelmed, they're just used to quitting and something or someone will instantaneously save them. And life does not work that way. Right. And, and, and some of those people don't even know that what they have been through is a challenge. Yeah. They look at it and they're so overwhelmed by the moment of the day rather than looking at the fact that I survived that. I did well. And now I can move on. Tell me a little bit about your brand new book, which is called Return to the River. Well, this is kind of a it was a quick book for me because books for me take a few years to do. It was unplanned. And it's kind of like AARP meets a child called it. It's a story about, you know, my character in a sense in the middle of COVID and serving, you know, two different fire districts. And then I had two unexpected uh, events, life altering events, and just trying to process, pardon me, process that while trying to physically move forward for as a child, pardon me, my most gracious moments with my family were at the Russian river. And I just had this childhood fantasy of, you know, going back to the river. Once I was done with, I call the James Bond effect I've done for God and country. I just wanted to come back to the Russian river. And it was so, uh, heavy on me when my father passed away of cancer. I did a, a, a line or two from Mice and Men. I said, Dad, I got, our, I got us a cabin at the river and no one's going to yell at us. We're going to have barbecues in summertime and fireplaces in the wintertime. It'll be a romantic father-son thing. And uh, I've, I can probably, you know, live just about anywhere, but my heart has always been at the river. And it's a, a book about spirituality, you know, not giving up that people behind the scenes are praying for you or something. And this is important. You know what? Again, I call the tumbler effect. I've had experiences Monto like you that sometimes two people will say something to me, the exact wording in a period of a matter of an hour, 24 hours. And I believe that is God talking to you. And I've had a sure you heard it, making sure you heard it the first time. Right. And I've had four people in a period of 24 hours tell me the same thing. And I think that is God screaming at you. So there's the threat of spirituality that, you know, that you're not alone. You know, the power of prayer, the circle of prayers. And to me, it's a haunting love story about family dynamics. Because what I did with this book, and, and you've asked the question before, like, what way did your mom go crazy? And I opened up the dynamic of my grandmother you know, just berating my mom, trying to control my mom and how my mom just flipped out or a very haunting moment for me. And I've never told this story. I didn't think before when my parents separated, it was in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which is the scummiest part of the, the city. My mother gave my father his life belongings in a box in the rain. I was kept in the car and I always fantasized about escaping. And I never had the guts to do it, Montel. I didn't have anywhere to go. I, I thought I was a prisoner. I thought I deserved the treatment. And by, I was so scared, my hand was shaking on the doorknob or the door handle. And I remember I cr it cracked open and I was going to run away and hide in an alley. And by coincidence, my father shut the door. He thought I opened it by accident. He ruined my escape. Mm. And it was just such, I knew that's when my mother, the countdown started and my mother was going to kill me. So I kind of go back with the books about being an adult and how you make decisions and how they affected your life. Because I made a lot of mistakes in my life. Uh, there was kindness of heart, maybe too much of that. I was very naive to a lot of things. 
But to me, it's a very subtle, romantic book about life. And at the end of the day, finding the home in your heart. And in that book, you do cover, you know, your spiritual journey as because I think religion is a very important part of your life, is it not? Yeah. Yes, sir. I, I, I pay tribute to that. And, and what I like about the book, too, it's not really about my character, what I'm going through and how it affects people and their spiritual journey or where they're at or where they're going. Because to me, you can live, you know, in a nice palatial estate or maybe a home that so-so. But as long as you're happy on the inside, again, Clark Kent, it just radiates to how you live your life. And it's a very dramatic, gripping book. Uh, uh, so far, I think I'm the best in the, the, the Kleenex uh, stocks because a, a lot of people are using Kleenex when they read this book. Mm. Sure. You you included in your book uh, your own haunting love story and losses in the book. Why did you feel that was necessary? Well, because I loved my former wife and I know she still loves me. We still love each other. It's 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 a, you know, a beautiful love story. But I think I didn't pay enough attention to my wife. I paid more attention to going overseas to Iraq in the summertime for the troops. Or, hey, there's a fire down the street. Or the state is burning. I have to do this. I couldn't find that balance. And at the same time, it's like we, we just grew in different directions. You know, I didn't invest as much as I should have. And what I did deliberately, and I'm proud to say this, I think we're done with Johnny Depp trials and Amber divorces and who Kardashian did this to that, whatever. What I wanted to do with this book, with that love story thread, was pay homage to my former wife. You know, it's kind of like a Casablanca homage. You have to make a decision what's best for the relationship and then, you know, just moving on. And there's not one derogatory syllable about my beautiful, I call her in the book, Miss Atomic Blonde, mm. which I thought that, that's a good pet name for her. Sure. And sometimes again, you know, you can still love each other. It's, it's, it's kind of sad because I never thought at age 60, I was 60 at the time, that I would get a divorce. That doesn't happen to someone. No way. And it's a different dynamic. But uh, she, we, we, we text each other every once in a while, you know, and it's, 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 it's sad. And what I'm trying to say, too, is don't end up like me. If you got a problem, raise your hand, talk it out, fix it, you know, do something. Pay attention, be in one of the moment. I, mean, I think that there are a lot of the people in relationships, especially at that age, you know, um, where, you know, they're more worried about the last quarter than they are worried about the last quarter they get to spend with their closest friend. Yes. Um, you know, and so we need to really, really focus in on and be in the moment, be there, be present. Um, and listen a lot. No kidding, listen a lot. What can you share with others about finding strength to carry on when you're faced with these overwhelming, unexpected events? There, there's a scene in, in the book toward the end that I'm moving into this little home in the Russian River. And Montel, I, I was so overwhelmed because, again, two different fire districts, they were two hours apart. Uh, everything, COVID, the vaccines, and then trying to physically unpack like. 200 boxes in the kitchen. And I was so overwhelmed. I had to stop and say, Dave, one box at a time. Unpack one box at a time. Might be 20 items in that box. Maybe one item. Do that. Just like when I work with those who are new in the program with AA, they do one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time, one minute at a time. And I think what I did, and I do it pretty well, you know, the military or you know, uh, you know, fighting fires, whatever I'm doing is I, I, when I teach my young firefighters is there's a million different steps. Just do it in three to five seconds. 
Okay, now five to eight seconds. Okay, three to five seconds. You just break it down that you can achieve something. Gain an inch a day. Uh, when I was at Katrina, I had a rescue crew and I said, we're trying to embrace the ocean. It's impossible. If we can move the ocean one inch a day, we're doing something to help these people in dire need. Firefighting, Montel, and I know you know this, is one of the best jobs in the world, but it's really one of the most grisliest jobs because you see great people on their absolute worst day. So you just have to do what you can. Absolutely. And you have to do what you can a little bit at a time. It's not that for a firefighter, that, that whole idea of seconds at a time. You don't rush into a fire and not recognize that you had to go, you know, open up the, some of the windows in the back may not have been opened yet. You have to take one step at a time. And that's really, I think, really what we have to do in life. You know, yeah. I do think too about the importance of your faith, though. And, you know, it's, it's played a really incredible role in your ability to overcome adversity, right? Talk a little bit about that. I, 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 I was raised as a Catholic and I was raised that God and Jesus loves children. And I remember before I was banished to the basement in the morning, I would see this rainbow and I would pray. I'd clasp my hands together and pray, make me be a good boy. You know, make me please my mom. Let me make me and it just, it got to the point that I gave up on God. And it was weird, Montel. I gave up on God hours before I was rescued. And it somehow worked out. And I do believe in the power of prayer. I believe that God is watching over us, but he wants us, a higher power wants us to kind of, you know, carry that weight. Because I tell people, God is busy. You know, God is so busy. So if he gives you some advice or maybe there's something going on there, you better listen analyze it, accept it, and move forward. And um, that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's very funny that you said it that way. But, you know, I think people who I always, I crack up a little bit when I hear this idea that I have my own personal relationship with God. Okay. I believe that, that you believe that. But at the same time, that personal relationship that you have is not what you think it is because there are 7 billion people on this planet. Those who aren't even believers still have a relationship with that person, correct? I mean, that's what yes. you have to believe. And so, you know, you're not the only one praying tonight. You're not the only one asking for a gift tonight or asking for salvation tonight. You know, you along with another probably 100 million people are asking the same question. And if supposedly this supreme being even has the ability to process all of that, you know, it's not done in a second. <laughs> you know, if it is, then we wouldn't believe that God's really who he is because he takes the time to recognize your needs and what you need to think it through. So, you know, I think um, part of your message has always been, you also have to do some of this work in preparation for that conversation that you have with God, like talking things out, right? Rather than swallowing your feelings, talking it through. He gives you the ability to be able to process your thoughts so that you can find some healing out of, what he's trained you to do for yourself, right? Yes. You got to carry the load and, and it, it makes you stronger. At the same time, you can pay it forward by giving your lessons. You know, that's what I think the books, whatever, on a, uh, I, I didn't plan it, but it's like, okay, try this or don't do that. Learn from my mistakes. And as a, when I was in the military, I was a chief and I always to teach what we call operators. Uh, never rush into a situation unless you know how you get out of it first. 
Absolutely. Always carry more water, uh, socks, ammo, three times more ammo. Never let them see you bleed, which means you may not have the answer, but you're there to support the troops. You're there to protect people, life, property. Do something. In a time of crisis, and people forget this, the first thought that comes to your head most likely is the proper form of action. But you have to do something because What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over. And With the same result. Different result. That's stupidity. Yep. And I think that's what COVID kind of taught us. It taught us to be humble. It taught us that we're going to have to adjust. And it is a brave new world. What kind of tips do you have for folks to help them get past their mistakes and still feel worthy? I, I, I think the first thing that comes to my head, Montel, is don't look at the problem for what you think it still is. Look at it from what it was five years ago. Maybe that divorce, maybe that medical situation, maybe that anger that triggers you. You have to look at it at a different sphere, in a sense. And you have to come to that form of acceptance. We, we have denial, we have anger, we try to bargain, we have depression and we go, okay, the fit has hit the shan, we're gonna have to do something different. Whether it's uh, Zooming for meetings, or maybe stocking up more on, on Costco or get your vaccines or just accept the fact that, you know, you made a mistake, you made a blunder, learn from it and move on. And I also think too, is we have to give ourselves the courage to have the permission to either forgive ourselves or to forgive others. And I've told you this, Mr. Williams, and you and I were very emotional on our first show. I'll never forget that. God bless you for that. But you have to forgive those that have harmed you. If you don't do that, I mean, my mother never, I look at this as an adult now. My mother never had a chance. There wasn't counseling. You didn't talk about depression, alcoholism, religion, money, sex. You didn't, those things were kept in the box. And I've totally forgive my mom for dead. And I pray that she's resting in peace for goodness sakes. And that allows me to be a better person, be a better Samaritan, be a good veteran and be a good person of service. Absolutely. You know, if people wanted to find out more about you, David, I mean, you have so many, you have what, nine books? How many books do you have out now? Eight books? This is your eight uh, book? The, the, I, uh, my, I, you're, you're the man. Uh, the, 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 the book came out, the book number nine came out yesterday, believe oh, it or not. God. Yesterday. God. And it days after the rescue. But Excellent. we have a Excellent. website. It's uh, DavePelzer.com and stuff like that. And I have a small little podcast show as well. And I try to give out uh, simpleton advice with a little bit of humor every once in a while. No, that's okay. What's the name of your podcast? So if people want to find it, because uh, uh, Dave Pelzer show, Dave Pelzer show, make sure you go up and look for that. And also again, if they wanted to reach out to you personally, where would they go? Dave Pelzer.com we website. And we have a, a thing that you can write us and we try to respond to, uh, you know, everything we can. We're, we're very proud of that. We try to help out. What's next for Dave Pelzer? Uh, we might be making a movie. <laughs> Okay, about the first book or the what? first book? Yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. been in the works since you and I met a few years ago right. in '97. Uh, I, I, you know, the business more than I do, Montel. It's it's a different clickish business, and, and and if it works out, it works out. But I think the big thing for me is to spend uh, you know, good quality time with my my grandson. Uh, he is so smart, Montel. You'd be proud at three months. He was accepted at MIT, the oh. Air Force Academy, and he's already been to Mars and back. Okay. Here's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a joy. No, I feel that way about mine. I've got a brand new grandson also who's going to return. Just turned a year this 
this week. And, um, you know, I spent some time with him this past weekend. It was just such a joy to be with him. Yeah. You know, you, you, you look at the, and, and this makes you stop for a second and really appreciate life, recognizing the fact that there will be life after you. Yes. Um, you have nothing to do with it uh, other than saying hello and goodbye, but there's life after you. And that, that's, well, that's you asked me a question, Montel, and I was very emotional. And I've been interviewed a thousand times before I had the chance to be on your show. And you said, David Pelzer, why do you do what you do? And I'll never forget the answer. I said, I want to leave a footprint for my son. I want to make this world a little bit cleaner. I want to pay homage to those who saved my life, who give me the breath that I can breathe today. And I have a section of my little town home, and it's a library for my grandson. It has Air Force uniforms or pieces of Scud missiles or firefighter paraphernalia. And, of course, my son's uh, uh, stuff, you know, animal collection that my son does not want my grandson to play with, which I do not understand. <laughs> yeah, crazy. So uh, what's next for you again? What do you uh, do? That the I did the grandson thing. You're, uh, you're, you're also speak. Are you you're not speaking around the country right now? Uh, I'm. Uh, I, I do some speaks. Matter of fact, you'd be proud of this. Uh, I think in May uh, we had to postpone it, but I'm going to be addressing the Army Airborne Rangers. Congratulations! Unbelievable, because I've I've done comedy. I've addressed any any organization in the world, and for me to be invited to speak to the Rangers. I'm going to do a little bit of Robin Williams for them because I, I don't want them to, you know, get mad. Not at me. Okay. I can't run right. that fast anymore. Sure. 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 That's so good, my friend. Well, look, we wish you well. And again, people want to get a hold of you. Go to davidpelzer.com. And then also the new book is called Return to the River. Return to the River. And that's published as of yesterday. And so people can get that on Amazon or they're going to get it in local bookstores. All over the world. All over the world. Congratulations, my friend. Uh, you seem to be doing so well. I, I wish you well. And I got to thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montella Day. Um, My honor. And I want to thank you for all the work that you do, Mr. Williams. Well, thank you, sir. You know, and it's, it's very funny. I'm sure that in another 10 years, I'll interview you again because there's so much more left in Dave Pelzer's life to get done. Well, in the words of Mr. Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. I'll be back. Okay, my friend. You take care of yourself. You stay well. Thank you, sir. Make sure you tune in to the next edition. A free thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.